Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. There's a man, I don't know if you say his name is Ski or Sky Chilton. Ski or Skies, S-K-I Chilton, okay? He grew up on a tobacco farm in North Carolina. He wrote the book, The Rewired Brain. I want to read a couple sections of that book to you today. I think it's just really powerful. And I want you to, to think through. This guy grew up in very humble means. He was dyslexic, so he really struggled in school. But then he went to college, and at college he went through Wake Forest in like three years. He's now a research doctor. He's, owned, he's done like 20-some starts as an entrepreneur for business. One of them went public. He does all sorts of amazing things. He's got a couple of nonprofits, one of which he's a president of. Okay? He's an amazing man. And he writes this. Almost a decade ago and during a difficult period of my life, I took my first church mission trip to Africa with a team of 25 others. Partnering with the charitable organization Samaritan's Feet, our team traveled to eight locations around the Masoyi community in South Africa over the course of 10 days, helping orphans affected by HIV-AIDS. At the time, this disease had wiped out a generation of young parents and orphaned 20,000 children in that community alone. We helped bring food, water, shoes, and deworming medication to close to 2,000 orphans during our visit. Before leaving the States, I am almost embarrassed to admit, Ski says, that I had not given the trip much thought. I travel often, and while I've never been to Africa, I thought, at a minimum, the visit to this great continent was an item to check off my bucket list. My lack of introspection prior to the trip probably had to do with the intense pressure and anxiety I was under both at home and at work. I was depressed, lonely, empty. Nothing could alleviate or remove these deep inner feelings. Nothing mattered because, in the end, Life seemed meaningless to me. Which reminds us of what is written in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life seemed meaningless to me. If you go to our gospel lesson of Matthew 11, it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, here John is, This one who is sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And John is sent and he's doing all of this work, this amazing work out in the wilderness. And people are coming in droves and they're being baptized, this baptism of repentance and following after him. Amazing things are going on, but then you know the story as well as I do. Herod has his brother's wife. And because of that, and John says, you know, that's not right. And so Herod puts him in prison. Now, if you're doing God's work, what do you automatically think? If I'm doing God's work, God's going to take care of me. He's going to make the path straight for me. He's going to do what needs to be done. Here I am doing God's work, and look at this. I'm in prison. I wonder, are you really the one that I thought you were? Are you really the one? And so when he asks that question, he sends his disciples out and says, go check. Make sure that this guy really is the one. In Jeff Gibbs' commentary on Matthew, he says this, 
Three rhetorical questions in verses 7 through 9 of our lesson for today invite Jesus' hearers to consider what they had gone out to see when so many of them had responded to John's ministry. You see, they go out to ask Jesus, these disciples of John go out to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And what Jesus shows is changed lives. He's done this, and he's done this, he's done this, and he's changed their lives. And that's a a theme I want you to think about, changing lives. But when he's talking to the the crowds that were around after those disciples lead, he asks this question, what did you go out to see? And the first answer that we see in the text is, um, a reed shaken by the wind? For some of you, you've known me for quite a while, okay? A descriptor that you might put on my tombstone is, a reed shaken by the wind, right? (laughs) Okay, fear of man does that to you. Okay, do you like me? Is everything okay? Oh, no. Was John like that? Not in the slightest. He went to the king and said, that's wrong. Don't do that. He would stand up to those Pharisees who came out to him and he said, you brood of vipers, who warns you to come out here? The last thing in the world John was was a reed shaken by the wind. Okay, he's like, no, I'm going to tell you how it is whether you like it or not. Do you have someone in your life who loves you enough to do that for you? Do you love other people enough to actually sometimes say, not to be the judge to stand over them all the time, but to let them know I have an area of concern? Well, that one didn't work. So then they said, Jesus asked again, What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? And then he goes on to say, those are in the king's houses, those who are dressed in soft clothing, which is so interesting because John's not stuck in a nice house. He's stuck in a prison of a king for what he said. What did you go out to see? They said, well, not just a prophet, but more than a prophet. And have you ever been like... Stuck on that? Like, what does that mean to be not just a prophet, but more than a prophet? Prophets are there to declare, these are the new things that God is doing. This is what's going on. This is what's going to come. That's what prophets would do. John is not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. How is he more? He's more because he's not just speaking. He's actually the fulfillment of the prophecy. I will send my messenger ahead of me. Oh, so who is this messenger? John is. John's the Elijah who was to come. Malachi talks about that. And then it gives us this little passage here. In Malachi 3, it says this. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then in our lesson here it says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He switches this me to you. What's going on there? What's going on is it's as though Yahweh God Almighty is speaking to the Messiah, Jesus. So what's happening here is we're revealing, God is revealing who John is. He is actually the fulfillment of, of a prophecy. And who is this Jesus it's pointing to him as being God. So, well, Jesus never says he's God. No, but he says it in lots of different ways that he's God. He's pointing us to the direction of who 
Jesus himself is, as Yahweh speaks to the Messiah, who will prepare your way before you, when in Malachi it was, prepare the, the way before me, Yahweh. So he's pointing to Jesus as God. I hope that made some sense. What did you go out to see? I went out to see John. Who did those people that, who are John's disciples, what did they go out to see? They went out to see if Jesus really was the one, if Jesus really is God in the flesh. If Jesus really is, as Exodus 23, 20 talks about, God says, I'm going to send my, the angel of the Lord who will bring you into the promised land. And here again, we have the angel of the Lord, Jesus coming, who will bring them into this point of salvation. Was that too deep? It's just reminding us again that Jesus isn't just a guy. And he's not just a savior, but he's God Almighty come to save us from our sin. Now, when they wanted to go out to see that, what did this Jesus do? And this is what I really want to focus on. Because you see, Jesus came to save. And when you think of the changes that Jesus brought, he would heal people. He would raise the dead. There's a lot of this physical stuff. Okay? But I want you to think about a couple other quick stories. One is Zacchaeus. You all know the story, right? Zacchaeus was a... Oh, man. See, you guys know it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? And so when Jesus goes to his house, okay, it's not because Zacchaeus had totally changed his life. He still was a chief tax collector. The height of lowly people. They were extortioners. They would steal from everybody else. The Romans said, take this much for us. And they would take as much as they wanted over the top. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief one. He was like the highest of them all. Which makes him the lowest of them all. And when Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to come to your house today. That fellowship there says, you are my friend. I accept you. Any of you walk here today, any of you drive here today, any of you come here to church today, any of you listening on, on whatever internet stuff there is, do you come today and say, you know what? Jesus couldn't possibly love or accept me. He did Zacchaeus. And it says in Scripture, for God so loved the world, that doesn't exclude any of you. It's who you are. It's who he is that he'll come to love you. And you know... Zacchaeus' life was changed. He didn't say, I'm going to do these things now. I'm going to give away half all that I own to the poor. And I'm going to give four times. Okay? Giving half. Can you imagine giving half of what you have to the poor? If they stole anything, they'd have to give 20%. When he says, I'll give four times as much, that's 300%. Just a quick chain. Just a quick question. When Jesus enters your life, is there change? When Jesus entered in and the Spirit was working, then people's lives were changed. They were raised from the dead. They were, they were healed, all that kind of stuff. When Jesus came into Zacchaeus' life, he was changed by the gospel, not by try harder, do more, be better. That doesn't change anybody, but God's love and acceptance changed his life. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is one who is... I'm boasting in what I can do. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm the top, 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 doing everything great. God, Jesus enters his life. 
And at a certain point, we looked at it in Bible study this morning, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the change is incredible. Because he says that this messenger of Satan came to torment me. And he pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away. And I asked in Bible class, when you ask the Lord over and over again to do something and he doesn't do something, how do you respond? I get frustrated. I stop praying. I'm not doing this anymore. Who does God think he is? He must not love me. Any of those responses sound familiar? But what St. Paul does is he remembers and he hears what God says. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then the Apostle Paul says something amazing. He says, therefore I will delight, I will boast in my weaknesses, and I will delight in my hardships and my persecutions and all of those other things. Change? How can we delight in our hardships and persecutions? How can we delight in all these other things when we properly order our lives? In the order of things this last week, I had things out of order. And I brought God down to right here, and then I had opinions of others were kind of surrounding it, maybe a little bit over it. And so when I heard of of God and of the good news and of all those things, I was kind of numb are you ever kind of numb to the gospel? Are you ever kind of numb to the good news? Are you ever kind of numb? It's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Who cares that Jesus died for me? Has that ever happened to you? It might be that you've brought God and the proper order of things down and other people and your pleasure and how things are working in your life and the control that you have. Those might be a little bit too important, right? But when the love of God for you, this amazing God who would take on flesh and suffer and die for you, When it's in its proper place, the rest of life flows really well. Notice what I said. The rest of life flows really well. It doesn't mean it's not have some ups and downs. Okay? But when he's in his right place, we'll handle them much better. Right? You experienced this, right? Pretty awesome, isn't it? I mean, that's what you're learning about. I haven't been there very often, so we're still working on it. But that's what you're learning about. So you can have solid foundation to stand on with who this Jesus is. What it does is it reframes things. I asked somebody recently to reframe how they looked at life. We all can do it. Pick a hardship that you go through right now. Don't tell me it. Don't say it out loud. Just pick a hardship. Okay? Whatever that might be. What is a hardship they're going through? Maybe a health hardship, a relational hardship, just something else that's going on. Somebody's not doing something right. Whatever it is. Okay? Now, how would you reframe it? How would you reframe it so that what it does is it shows your weakness and God's strength and how God can use it to humble you and how God can use it to show that you depend on him more and more and more? And wouldn't that then be a good thing? Maybe? How can I reframe what I'm going through? People are mean to me. Do any of you have that problem? How people treat me? In the midst of those times, do you ever start to believe what they say about you? 
What if you took for a second and said, I wonder if the, the comments that I'm hearing drive me back to really listen to what God says is true about me. And then the question I have for you is, do you listen to God or do you listen to the people around you? And isn't it funny, you and I, don't we say some of the most interesting things about other people? (laughs) And sometimes those things that we say about other people are based on very little knowledge and a great deal of judgment and sometimes a lack of sleep on our part. And you really want that other person to live based on what you just said or thought about them? When God speaks truth to us that we can listen to? Paul was changed. Zacchaeus was changed. And I'm going to tell you how Ski was changed. After 30 long hours of travel on their way to Africa... Our team finally touched down at the International Airport in Johannesburg, where we boarded a school bus for the final six-hour leg to our destination, a small Bible college surrounded by a huge barbed wire fence in the middle of a large shanty town. Following a few hours of sleep, we were welcomed with a hearty breakfast and a devotional by Manny Ohom, a large African man with a big smile. Manny was originally from Nigeria, had moved to the United States to play college basketball, became a very successful businessman, and now was president of Samaritan's Feet. Though I can't remember what the devotional was about, I will never forget what this man said to me right after he closed in prayer. We had not yet been formally introduced, but for reasons I did not understand at the time, he picked me out of the crowd and walked straight towards me. Looking me square in the eyes, Manny said, God told me that you're about to be messed up. (laughs) Taken aback, I stared back at him as if he were crazy. I didn't know what he meant by his bold statement. Who does he think he is? Not knowing what to say in response, I simply nodded my head. Our team's first task was to provide shoes for hundreds of beautiful children ages 2 to 18. They gathered in a long line and for hours waited while our team washed the feet of each child and put a pair of clean shoes on them. For many, it was their first pair. I had the privilege of praying with the orphans after they received their shoes. Many of them recounted brief, though heartbreaking, stories of unthinkable suffering and abuse. When I asked how I could pray for them, I felt helpless, uttering what felt like trite words in the midst of their devastating lives. What good would a pair of shoes and a prayer really do? Two days later, Manny's prophetic words became reality. Our group traveled to a banana plantation. I cannot explain what happened the moment I stepped off the bus and my feet touched down on the red African soil, but I immediately sensed my life would forever be changed at this time and by this place. As I turned my head to scan the landscape, my eyes first fell on the hundreds of children confined behind a tangled and rusty barbed wire fence. The older ones stuck their heads through the sharp coils to get a better look at the rich Americans walking towards them. I noticed off to the side a group of about 50 infants, likely two years old and under, sitting in muddy sewer water. Some were playing, splashing about in the mosquito-infested puddle, but most were crying, wailing at the top of their lungs. I was inexplicably drawn to one particular child who appeared to be about two years of age. 
His eyes were deep yellow from liver failure as a result of AIDS and tuberculosis. His face badly distorted from a birth defect and the ravages of malnutrition. He was crying, but only half-heartedly, as he had cried for so long without anyone paying attention. I asked one of the grannies, the older women in charge of the smaller kids, the name of this child. She shook her head and shrugged. She didn't know. And that is when I realized none of the children behind the barbed wire had a name. This took my breath away. Staring at the tearful baby, my, instincts, my instinct was to scoop him up in my arms. But as we locked eyes, I thought with fear, I can't hold him. It's too much of a risk. As a biomedical researcher, I knew the ramifications of con contracting a drug-resistant strain of tuberculosis. In that moment, for the first time in my life, I heard God speak to my heart. Let me say that up to that point, I had always scoffed. I'm sorry, I'd always been the one in the crowd who scoffed with scientific arrogance whenever I would hear someone say they heard the voice of God. But standing there, staring at a malnourished, crying baby in the sweltering African heat, I felt in my heart as clear as day God asking me, Who are you? And then, Whose are you? I believe the first question was not an inquiry of my identity. I assume God knows exactly who I am. I believe it was a reminder of my humanity. I was connected to this child through the family of the human race in ways I did not comprehend. And in showing love to this child and others roaming around the banana plantation, I was showing love to the entire human race, including myself. This understanding was well beyond my way of thinking, which is really only capable of caring about myself and my family. It came from the powerful new way of thinking in connection with God. The question, whose are you? prompted me to realize that I, like this crying child, was a child of God. And though I had been living in a spiritual world that was oblivious to me most of the time, the present moment cha challenged me to step up to a life of faith beyond mere words, theology, and religious tradition. Because I was in a personal relationship with God, I had a responsibility to be His arms, His feet, His love in this and every situation following I immediately picked up the child from the muddy water, wiped his face with my shirt, and pressed his face against mine. Holding his emaciated body tight, I softly sang the same lullaby my mom had sung to me. Bye, oh baby, oh bye, oh baby. Almost immediately, the little guy stopped crying. He looked right into my eyes, and for the first and only time in my life, I saw the face of God. This moment changed everything. My perception of a human condition and my role on this planet shifted. My perspective that everything was meaningless dissipated, and a new one of purpose was created. My dear African brother Manny was right. I was messed up, messed up in the most meaningful way possible that would forever change the trajectory of my life. He goes on to write this. On that day in the banana plantation, I began to realize that life is much simpler than I had ever imagined. I have only one job during my time on this planet, to love. If you start each day with the intention of loving, everything else in your life, your relationships, your career, your mortality, all your efforts, how you spend your time, will take care of itself. And together they will result in a beautiful, meaningful, and joyful life. John the Baptist. Life could be meaningless. Did my life have any purpose here? I've lived my life. I'm going to die for calling out the king. And now, has it been worth it? 
for Sky or Ski. Here I am, I've got all these degrees, I've got all these businesses I've started, but I've had a hard time in my family, I've had a hard time in my career. Is it all worth it? You sitting here today, do you ever go through those moments where you say, it's just hopeless, is life even worth it? Am I the only one that's ever gone through that? Nope. And you know what? I had a bad day on Wednesday night, Thursday, all the way through that day until Friday morning when I read this. And I thought, what am I bothered about? What am I, I actually have a name. I'm actually important to some people. I actually have a meaningful work to do in life. What's going on with me? And this little story helped to bring me out and order things rightly again in my life. And I began to ask, who is God putting in my life to love? Because he began to change how I think and how I step forward. If you come here today saying, what meaning is in my life? I want to say that cross right there. That forerunner that was to you know, talk about the one to come, John the Baptist talking about Jesus. Jesus really did die to save us from our sin, from the power of the devil to depress us, from my own lives that only are centered on me, from meaningless existence, that I might have great hope as I long for the day when he will come again and we will live new heavens and new earth, living and reigning with him forever when I have my eyes on him and live in the changed life he's given me, I'm really prepared well for Advent. And when I'm loving others, God's going to use me to help them be prepared as well. Amen?